EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is April 3rd, and I talk to Ukrainian journalist Alisa Sopova. She is a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. My name is Alisa Sopova. I am a journalist from Ukraine and the Neiman Fellow at Harvard in 2017. Could you please tell us a little bit about recent events in Ukraine and how you reported about them? Okay, just for a little background, for those who maybe forgot, uh, in the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, we had uh, a popular uprising in Kiev, which uh, ended up with uh, um, throwing out the president, uh, the, uh, the president of the uh, of that time in Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. And then, even though it started as a fight for uh, dignity and against corruption, it ended up in a big mess uh, in the process of which uh, our big neighbor Russia annexed uh, a Crimean Peninsula and then uh, uh, two regions in the east of the country proclaimed themselves self-proclaimed republics. And now we have a war between this self-proclaimed republics backed by Russia and Ukrainian governmental forces. And of course, it uh, created the whole new situation for journalists. First, journalists became divided because part of them, they stayed on the uh, separatist territories and uh, started covering it from pro-Russian perspective. Uh, Speaking about journalists on the Ukrainian side, I think they had a big shock in back in 2014 when we had this huge fl- overflow of uh, what is now popular as fake news in America. At that, m- that moment nobody heard about fake news there, but we had just tons of them. Every day Russian TV and Russian media would report everything happening in Ukraine just upside down, calling white, black and black, white. And that was absolutely terrible. But then Ukrainian journalists seeing this, they assumed they were shocked by it and they assumed that um, now they are in some sort of informational war and they should uh, join this informational war and fight on the side of Ukraine as patriots. And then this narrative of uh, arose that it is uh, more important to be a patriot than being a journalist. So first of all, you, you ask yourself a question of, am I a patriot? And then, and then uh, the report, reporting started being very much one-sided too. So that now, for example, it is uh, unthinkable in Ukraine for Ukrainian journalists that you can go to the other side and report actually life of people in Donetsk, which would be logical to cover conflict from, from the both sides and to cover citizens of Ukraine who live uh, under occupation, as it is assumed Can by Ukraine. Can you really yeah. travel to Donetsk from Kiev to do reporting? Can you? Do you have access to these regions? Yeah, access is not very easy, uh, and it's uh, it's quite hard to get accreditation from this local de facto authorities. But the problem is, th- this is the first problem, and the second problem is that actually demand for these accreditations doesn't exist. Also, there was a short period in 
autumn 2014 when some Ukrainian media outlets they did some efforts to report from Donetsk and they got accreditations and they came and reported but it was a very small window and very small effort so now even though these two sides are at war against each other they are perfectly well cooperating with each other in a way of uh, not letting Ukraine of uh, not uh, not reporting Uh, life in Donetsk from Ukrainian side because Ukrainian side doesn't show any interest in it and the uh, separatist side doesn't uh, doesn't give this opportunity. So we can state that we have one-sided information which is basically coming from Russian Russian side, I mean Russian-backed military forces and we don't really have anything that Ukrainians can tell us from, from on the ground. Um, yes, we have one-sided information from Russian side and we have one-sided information from Ukrainian side. And it is uh, often impossible to find truth among these two one-sided informations. Especially when we speak about uh, what is happening actually in these territories not controlled by government. Because this is, uh, this is not properly covered from any sides and mostly Ukrainian media just limit their coverage with calling this, this territory something like murder or black hole, something that is totally mysterious and dark for us and we don't, don't know what's happening there. And Russian sides just, uh, Russian side is not very in interested now in covering it because it's not the, the biggest issue for them now. But when they cover it, it's something like hooray patriotic about people in Donetsk all loving Putin, you know, and being happy. Yeah. Tell us how it, it is actually like to be in, in Eastern Ukraine right now. You know, so when you speak about um, about living in the middle of the conflict, you and, and I think it's partly because of the typical media coverage showing us destroyed villages and tanks, you know, and soldiers and uh, and women uh, with hair, hair headscarves, you know, who are miserable. You imagine something like this. In fact, my family that lives uh, in uh, downtown Donetsk never actually suffered much from shelling because uh, there was no much actual combat situations in the center of the city. Sometimes it was close, but it never happened like in our back backyard. And sometimes uh, there were situations then where, when they had to go to the basement because, or because it was dangerous, but then they would come back, it, was, it, st it still would be there. But then, uh, in the end, you realize that the biggest problem is not the shelling or bombing itself. Because people, even we don't have thanks God aviation bombing, which is much worse than what we have, than the artillery that we have. But I know that even with, with the, in the case of aviation bombing, people at some point work pretty quickly. They get used to it and they just know what to do and they do it. They hide or they lay down or they do something. And otherwise their life goes more, more or less normal. But then when you are in this long frozen conflict, you realize that you face some other problems, which is like economic stagnation and situation when you get economically cut off Ukraine and not economically connected to Russia and it, it ends up of in people losing their jobs and businesses not being able to work normally. Like for example, my mom, she runs a small business of producing desktop lamps, such little lamps that we use for reading. And she, had, uh, she used to have the whole market in Ukraine and now this whole market is cut off with economic blockade. 
And then she had to, and it was a period when they were desperate. And, they, and she was like, why are you asking me about this? I'm desperate because we cannot work normally. Now she managed to reorient her market to Russia. And now they sell it to Russia. But we don't know at any because it's all so vulnerable. We don't know at any moment what's going to happen and how it's going to change. Another huge problem is the restrictions for movement. Because people are locked in this small territory, like in Gaza. And, they, and it's very hard. You can travel to Russia. But you we have also to, to to pass through all this procedure of crossing the border. And traveling to Ukraine and back is a, a huge problem because Ukraine uh, introduced some special way of crossing the border, which is heavily bureaucratized. And uh, they claim it is for not letting uh, terrorists get into Ukraine, but it doesn't prevent any terrorists from getting to Ukraine. They go to Russia and they g go from to Ukraine from Russia when they want. But it ends up in, in people standing there gathering huge lines of cars and pedestrians in the front, in the, this front line crossing. And people, like right now, it's some tough moment when people buy cars, they had wait for the maps for several days standing in line there. And in the night, fight, fighting starts uh, around there. And uh, there were cases when people would explode on landmines, when just by shelling people would be killed in these lines. It's like just basically using human shield, uh, gathering people there. So every time you sit there, but any small thing you need to do, any legal thing you need to do, which is another problem, if you have a baby living in, in uh, Donetsk, you don't know what to do with this baby because you can registrate him or her um, there but in Donetsk, but these papers, they don't have any legal status. So you have to take this baby and go to Ukrainian site and registrate him. But then you, to go there, you have to wait in line for days sometimes in the front line in the dangerous place, somewhere in the middle of the minefield. And this all is much bigger problem actually than than living somewhere where shelling can happen. So, uh, Michael's next question is about the future in Ukraine. How do you see where it lies? Because Russia is not going anywhere. It's a, it's a next door neighbor. It's a historical. There, there is this historical sentiment towards Russia. All the identity issues, the Ukrainians' history, the Ukrainians share with Russia. How do you see? How can these two nations reconcile again? I'm talking about reconciliation, which is a far away. A far away goal, but looking to the f towards the future, do you see it possible? When we speak that future is uh, somehow connected to past and the history repeats itself, then it's hard to imagine because for it's not a new situation now. Russia and Ukraine they are like they are like um, husband and wife who have complicated relationship that sometimes they fight, sometimes they want to divorce, sometimes they reconcile again. So it's been lasting, it's not the first time, it's been lasting for centuries and centuries. They're either at war or Ukraine becomes a part of Russia, which I, we cannot say, call some proper reconciliation. I believe that probably some good scenario would lay in the idea that Russia would, would um, accept the fact that Ukraine is a separate country and is not a part because Russia historically looks at Ukraine as the, some Russian part of Russia which ha, which is misbehaving and having some wrong ideas and we need to take it back you know and uh, take care of it and explain it that it has been mistaken 
which proved to be unsuccessful during during lo long period of history. So probably if Russia accepted the idea that yes, Ukraine is a different country and let's just be good neighbors, let's not try to tell each other how to live and impose some rules on each other, maybe this would be a, a good solution. So I'm not quite sure how realistic it is. What about Ukraine's future in the European Union? Do you see Ukraine as a part of the European Union? I wouldn't talk about the future of Ukraine in the European Union because Ukraine is, um, of course, Ukraine wants it so much, but also this progressive um, middle class people who went out to Maidan initially for uh, the European future and all these European values, I would say that now they are pretty much disappointed with the way European Union actually treats Ukraine. Because this, uh, for example, just last week, um, uh, Georgia got this non-visa entrance regime to European Union. And uh, uh, Ukraine and Georgia, they, they were considered in one package. And then Ukraine didn't get it in the end. Though I don't, I'm not sure how much I am biased or not and how my information is right. But as far as I know, Ukraine uh, got a long list of uh, uh, things uh, the government has to do in order to get it. And then they fulfilled it all, according, according to my information. But still they didn't get it. And uh, I know and we all know that Ukraine has millions of troubles and it has corruption and it has all this. Uh, but in this case, and it, it's, it doesn't look like when in Ukraine, when people talk in a sober way, they always say that we should realize that European Union doesn't want us. But then, uh, in this case, European Union should also be uh, more honest and say, no, we don't want you, just uh, do something on your own, find your own way. But European Union is playing some constant game with Ukraine, like showing uh, this, you know, candy to this kid, like, oh, come on, I will give you maybe, our, you know, or this bone to a dog, like, Shh, you know, you can maybe get it. But uh, in the end, never, never getting it. So I think we should, we, we should uh, decide, either we, uh, we, we should... Uh, work towards some cooperation or should not because this uh, ambiguous situation is really annoying. You talked a little bit about the, dis the disappointment people are having after, after Maidan. Tell us a little bit more about that. Why is this happening? Do you see politicians properly addressing people's disappointment? So to begin with, I think that uh, it is generally good that Ukrainian society is experimenting and trying to look for new ways and not being afraid to overthrow one president and another president and so on. Uh, in some global historical perspective, probably this is a good process. But looking uh, in a more close way at what is happening right now, um, me, me, for example, I, will, I, I never supported Maidan since the very beginning. And not for the, for the reason that I was from Donetsk, I would support Yanukovych or something. But for the reason that it wasn't constructive, it it didn't. Uh, there were no ideas for what we're gonna do next. Uh, what was what laid in the base in in the basis of of the whole movement was, oh, we don't like Yanukovych, we don't like the whole thing that is happening, we don't like the whole system. Let's just go out and burn everything and overthrow everything, and then somehow everything will be good by itself. But uh, then people find out that it's not it it won't be good by itself. When you achieve your goal, you destroy everything and you want to, you have to build from the scratch. 
you realize that you, you, need, you need to know how to build and you need at least to have some idea of what you want to build. And Ukrainians didn't have this idea. They somehow, the expectations, the expectation, if you speak about it in such a broad way, was that we will get rid of our government and then Europe and America and the Western world will, will come and resolve all our problems, which is not very mature way of thinking. So now the disappointment is connected partly with uh, the fact that people just didn't get what they, ex what they expected and partly with, uh, yeah, with, the, with the understanding that uh, I don't know how, it is, how far, how big really this understanding is, but I think it exists that uh, with understanding that the efforts we did are not enough to, to succeed. We need to do something else and we have no idea. I mean, we have maybe some theoretic idea, but uh, we don't know how to, how to do it uh, in the practice, how to um, change system, how to not be so corrupted. Because in fact, all the people, not all, the, but the vast majority of people who were the leaders of Maidan, who were s delivering brilliant, passionate speeches about how we want to be European and progressive and everything. In half a year, they all became corrupted. They all joined parliament or some, or some uh, political parties, and they got involved into this all these black schemes which exist, and uh, and we don't know how to change the whole system. What, what what is the greatest challenge for you as a journalist beyond being able to having access to eastern eastern Ukraine? What, what what's the greatest challenge for you as a journalist in terms of reporting about? about developments in Ukraine, I mean, general developments? You know, uh, for, for me personally, I think my case is not, is not uh, very popular for Ukraine because I think the challenges for majority of journalists is to actually figure out what is the right way to report on conflict now. Uh, maybe I'm mistaken, but I believe that uh, I figured out the right way for me. And I believe because I'm from Donetsk and I've been covering the both sides and I have access to the other side just due to the fact that I'm local. Uh, so I've seen the both sides and I reported the both sides and I believe it gave me a, a broader perspective of the situation. So I'm not just sitting on one side and saying that, oh, we should never negotiate with them because they're terrorists. We should just be proud of how we are glorious Ukrainians fighting for something. But uh, I'm, I'm seeing some, some basis for reconciliation and for how people are similar and, and how we should maybe establish some dialogue. And Tell us a little more about mm -hmm. this dialogue and establishing paths for reconciliation. Or I basically came here to Harvard and applied for, this, applied for this fellowship because I wanted to understand. I've seen the practice of what's happening in my country. I wanted to know the theory of what, what the hell is this, <laughs> what does it mean, how does it work, and what we can do about it. And uh, what I studied here actually uh, goes along with what I felt about seeing people on both sides being very similar, being just brainwashed by different informational flows from different sides, and therefore hating each other, though acting against their own interests. And then I studied here some, some of the basic technologies of reconciliation. When you, when you gather people from uh, both sides into some groups, you know, and let them talk about their trauma to each other. If, you, for example, you're, you're a middle-aged woman who lost her son at war from one side and from the other side, you tend to hate the other side. But when you talk to this woman who is the same as you, and you see that she had the same trauma, and then you can somehow spread this idea in your community, all these things help.
and uh, I believe that some programs like this could re could help Ukraine. Though I'm not sure if it is already time for doing something like this because the level of the ready the people of people being ready for the dialogue is is very low, and I don't really see, I, I see very very few uh, back, of background for any reconciliation. I just believe that. Uh, you know, since war started, it it has to go through some um, through some stages, and uh, as it as it goes and goes and goes, and this, as I believe more and more people start to realize that it doesn't bring you anywhere. You can fight, but uh, but it doesn't change anything. So at some point, people probably will start asking themselves what we should do to make it in, to to do it in other way, and uh, then we can we can we, we can try to establish some dialogue. I believe, because we are not, uh, in Ukraine people believe because it happened to us for the first time since Second World War, and people feel like this is a unique situation, it's the biggest catastrophe in the world. But when I took some courses about war here, and I studied how many wars actually are happening right now in the world, and how many of them have finished, and there, there are some common patterns about how it goes and goes, and then people, uh, and then they try to find some some uh, consensus and they try to negotiate somehow. So probably we are just on the earlier stage. We need to fight a bit more to realize it doesn't help. And one more question. What's your opinion? How people who live in eastern part of Ukraine, which, are, which is now controlled by Russian-backed forces, are feeling about the same about this situation? Because they are at, they are the most vulnerable part. They are the most vulnerable people in this in this whole situation? I think that actually people who live there, even though from the mainstream point of view, which we uh, normally accept in Ukraine and in Western world, uh, from this point of view, these people might seem like less adequate and more brainwashed because they live in some reality where Putin is great and uh, Russia and world and all this stuff. But uh, I would think I would say that apart from this, practically, maybe these people are closer now to the point of being ready for dialogue, because they uh, got into tougher, into much more tough situation. For example, people in Kiev, even though we say about the war in Ukraine in general, but people in Kiev they never seen any uh, any actual combat. They never heard shelling, they never had their windows blown away by explosions and everything. So for them it's easier to live in the world where there are good guys and bad guys and we should fight them till the glorious victory and all this stuff. But people who live at the front lines and they, they cannot fall asleep every night because they have shelling all around their house, they, uh, they think differently. They think, okay, we, uh, we are just enough of it. Let's just, uh, it doesn't work. And uh, it's proven for them, and they see now that the both sides aren't. If, if before they were much more pro-Russian, now they are much more rational. They're like, come on, the both sides are doing bad things. And we uh, don't believe anymore that some side is good, some side is bad. We just wanted to finish. Let's just find a way to stop this craze. So I think they are much more practical, and they are more ready to, to some dialogue, some reconciliation. Have you been in Donetsk when actual shelling and combats happening yes of course I lo I actually lost my house because it was just uh, very close two kilometers from Donetsk airport which was uh, the biggest battlefield and still stays uh, 
sort of the biggest battlefield of the whole war. So I had to flee my house because it was uh, under shelling. And yes, it's it's not just even like I spent I, uh, during the three years of war. I spent like half of it in Donetsk. I would basically spend uh, a month in Kiev and once in Donetsk because of my work. So yes, of course. Sometimes I would just uh, I would be in situations when you have lay down because it's falling around. Sometimes you just hear it on the distance. It's like a normal uh, background. Is there anything we didn't ask you about that you have thoughts and you would, would like to tell us about the conflict, about covering the conflict, about the situation in Ukraine, in Europe, maybe in Russia? Anything you just want to tell us? Okay, so answering your last question, then I will say that. Uh, that even though Ukraine is a bit different, did not, it's not very representative for the rest of Europe, especially Western Europe situation is very different. But still, I think that uh, our progressive Europeans, uh, it would be useful for them to look at Ukraine as an example of what might happen. Because uh, since 2004, the series of government in Ukraine, we are very much excited with playing and uh, really enjoyed playing with this uh, um, public narrative of oh how do we win the next elections maybe we will win it because of sub we gain support of Russian speaking population so we will advertise to Russian speaking population that we will give them more rights and make Russian language official oh no maybe uh, this time we will um, win elections by uh, gaining support of Ukrainian speaking population and uh, Western Ukraine and we will tell them about how we're gonna be super pro-Ukrainian and uh, build uh, a very uh, um, proper nation state and all this kind of stuff and in the end it and it it, it, it ended up in uh, this polarization of society which was then used by some hostile power from outside to trigger conflict for their for their benefit so i'm not a big specialist but i see now uh, some sort of polarization of society in many countries of Europe, when again politicians are playing on that polarization to achieve their goals. And uh, I know that uh, say, giving some notes to these politicians doesn't make sense, but I think that for common people who are thinking for whom they vote and uh, which nar narrative they follow and uh, how to balance their media diet, this example of Ukraine would be uh, useful to understand what happens when you start following some populist or abstract uh, ideas about the country just uh, in somebody's political ambitions. Thank you so very much. This was very interesting. Wonderful conversation. Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C. 